Hi, welcome to the Shape Loss Podcast. In this inspiring episode, we'll sit down with Margaret Shamantine Deborah, the remarkable female founder of Eatall and a passionate entrepreneur. Margaret's journey in the food industry has been nothing short of extraordinary, and she has made a significant impact with her innovative approach to shining a spotlight on African food while promoting healthy eating and sustainable food practices. Join me as we delve deep into Margaret's entrepreneurial journey, exploring the challenges she faced and the lessons she learned along the way. We discuss the inspiration behind Ito and how Margaret's vision for a healthy and more sustainable future drives her work. Now here's my conversation with Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Um, welcome to the Shape Notes podcast. It's good to have you. Um, it's nice to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to this interview and I'm loving the work you're currently doing on showcasing Africa and all the great things that are happening on the continent. So yeah, really happy to be here today. Awesome. Uh, so let's kick it off. Um, so whenever you know I think of great female entrepreneurs, I'm always reminded of the story of Madame C.J. Walker. Um, she was, you know, a child of sharecroppers who managed to transform herself from being an uneducated farm worker into one of the 20th century's most successful self-made uh, female entrepreneurs. And she credits some of that early experience. She credits her early experiences um, as having had an impact on how, on her becoming the successful woman that she later became in life. So I'm also interested in learning about your early context. What was, what are some of the memories that you had growing up that have helped uh, shape who you are, and 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 define who you are as an entrepreneur? Okay, um, yeah, um, good question. So I guess for me, um, you know, traditionally I am Ghanaian, and my tribe is Ashanti. Uh, our um tribe and culturally, where women sit within our tribe, we are. You know, we are strong individuals within the household. Yes, we do look onto the men for guidance. Um, but my grandma, my mom, they've all been very kind of crucial in my growth. Um, you know, my work ethic and just believing in myself and taking myself to new heights. So my mom's a character that, you know, she for her she can go anywhere. Um, you know, nothing's off limit. And I think having that spirit within me and applying that to more a business um, sense has meant that I've been able to kind of build and have visions for things that maybe not everyone sees. Um, and it doesn't kind of scare me off. It actually excites me to go out there and try to, um, and make the impossible possible. Um, so, yeah, I would say a lot of... Um, the influence I've had actually has come from home and it has just been more culturally and spiritually um, being embedded in me as an individual. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm also interested in you, you speak about, um, you mentioned a little bit about your, your spirituality. So what are some of those values? Um, what are some of your values and how do they guide you, you know, when making business decisions? Yeah, I think so. I am, a, um, you know, I believe in God. Um, and I think for the most part, um, you know, when you believe in God, even as an entrepreneur, and I started my journey as a solo founder, 
um, before kind of onboarding a team, um, you're just not alone on the journey. Even though physically you may feel alone, I have a connection to God. So in everything I do, I start my day with God. Um, when I come, when I'm faced with challenges, it's you know praying for guidance. Um, and then just kind of sometimes just referencing some of like the great leaders that have kind of gone before me and seeing that, you know, they were able to do things, great things with limited resources and limited kind of budget. So it's just also tapping into that and just knowing that if they can do that, then why what I'm building and the things I'm doing are not that grand, if that makes sense in the great scheme of things. So um, I think for me, you know, this journey would not have started without God. Um, I, um, my relationship with God is crucial in anything I do. Um, and yeah, um, I just feel with God by your side, nothing is impossible. Like you can just do anything as an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you spoke about your mother and your grandmother, some of the maternal figures that were instrumental in your growth. And I'm also interested in maybe you can share with us some of some some other people that have been influential in your life, and uh, more specifically how they've impacted you in your journey as an entrepreneur. Um, okay, so I guess if I you know start in first with Africa, um, you know some of the great leaders that have inspired me are, you know, men like Thomas Sankara, Kwame Nkrumah, um, for what they've done for Africa um, at a time where, you know, we were, you know, dealing with so many challenges. Um, it's just, they, you know, they're always a reference point to me as to what a man should look like and to what, um, what you know, when you believe in something, um, even if you're standing alone, don't give up just keep going for it and yes sometimes you know in both scenarios you know it's the people that will brought them down but then at the same time you know for what they stood for their memories and their legacy will never die and I I just love to be able to reference and just keep learning about them daily um, and the great things they do I think also in terms of influences as well I've worked in financial services for a very long time, so like 11 plus years. And within, um, you know, you've, we've seen some great banks and I've worked for really great organisations such as JP Morgan, Jefferies, and within, within um, you know, that Wall, um, Wall Street arm, you know, there are some significant people like, for instance, the CEO and founder of Blackstone, um, Stephen Schwartzman. He's definitely... Um, been influential in my journey because he has a book um, at the moment called What It Takes and honestly I do encourage every entrepreneur to read it it's, it's, it's raw it's fresh and it just it talks to you know just being resilient and never giving up um, so just being able to reference great individuals like that within financial services has also encouraged my journey and I think for me as well it's I never stopped learning so I never I'm always you know reading up on new people trying to understand what they've done and I just I'm always in a cycle of continuous learning and um, that means I come across really great figures and then I'm able to kind of apply that to what I'm doing so it's it's 
I would say it's an ongoing thing. I never, you know, I don't just have one complete list and that's it. You know, next week I could add someone else that I've read up about and really find their journey inspiring. And I do encourage most entrepreneurs to, you know, always read up about great individuals outside of their sector because whilst you know different sectors do different things the core of entrepreneurship across um, the landscape is the same so you know being um, able to problem solve having vision you know have building a team these are kind of like skills and a mindset that you need in any form of startup you know it doesn't just apply to kind of like one sector so I always encourage people to just read up about great entrepreneurs um, in general. Yeah, awesome. And you were also talking about um, the idea of having a great work ethic. Yeah. And, you know, people always talk about this, you know, you know concept of work-life balance. First of all, I want to understand what you make of it. Um, is there such thing? And how do you balance the demands of in this case, running a business with your personal life and, you know, self-care, mental health and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So for me, I always tell people that if you're going to go down the entrepreneur journey, make sure you're you're, um, solving a problem in an area that you like. So me, naturally, I'm a foodie. I love great food. I love eating. I love cooking. So building Ito makes sense for me. I'm passionate about food in general um and when it comes to balancing I don't necessarily I don't see Ito as like work I see it as something I love I see it as me being able to kind of change the landscape when it comes to African food um so every day I wake up yes I might have a demanding schedule to one person but for me I'm doing things I generally like to do so I don't mind spend like I would happily spend two hours researching about things that would move Ito forward then go into a bar to drink that's just who I am as a person but in terms of like self-care and stuff like that it you know um it's always good to you know be learning doing building but it's as important to take care of your body and I don't really, when it comes to self-care, it's something that I don't, I allow myself to enjoy and I spend a lot of time doing the things I like to do. So whether that's a spa day, um, doing my nails, um, getting my hair done, maybe let's, I would even include going for brunch with the girls as like a self-care day because you're able to kind of release, kind of talk about like random things you know and not really have to be so switched on so I think when it comes to taking care of oneself it's so important than 10% into your business and if you don't put 110% into your business the output's going to be rubbish so I always encourage individuals to take that time out if they need it if they feel burnt down maybe review what um their diet so I'm very you know I have a food startup and like for me my diet is very balanced so as much as I can enjoy let's just say a Ghanaian dish called palm nut soup I I also enjoy my green glow smoothie which gives my body all the nutrients and the vitamins it needs and then I'm you know big on multivitamins I take my iron tablet um and yeah just I I love to take care of myself so for me personally you know this entrepreneurial life hasn't meant that 
I've now kind of struggled in the self-care. If anything, I feel like I'm getting, I'm looking younger, I'm looking fitter, I'm looking fresher, which I love. And um, But then there is another side to it because, you know, I'm a Ghanaian woman and I, at my age, you know, most of us would be married by now. Um, and I do sometimes think that I, I do spend more time building as a, like building in terms of work as opposed to like finding my lifelong partner. So if I, if I, if I was to give someone advice, especially someone starting the journey, I would say, if you know, you want to get married, if you know, you want to have kids, um, starting a business is a great thing, but make sure you're allocating time to meet in your life partner, because once you start this entrepreneurial journey, it's so easy to get consumed. And then before you know it, 10 years goes by and you look to your left and you're like, oh, wait, I don't have a partner. But that's because your mind wasn't there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's I, I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but yeah, that's kind of like my take on your question. No, definitely. I think um, sometimes as entrepreneurs, we can get consumed by our work and like you're saying, you know, self-care and being able to make sure that you're eating healthy and, and that sort of thing is an extension uh, to actually being productive and producing quality work, right? So, um, and, and like you also mentioned, you know, there's always an element of of sacrifice that is involved if you're trying to build something. But um, I think it, it also ties into what you said earlier, that you have to find something that you're really passionate about. Um, I think it also kind of makes everything smoother. Um, yeah. So I, I'm just interested in uh, knowing what inspired you to start uh, ETO and um, what problem do you aim to solve? Okay, so I guess let me start by kind of introducing ETO as well. So Ito is, you know, an Africa Food Network Times milk kit company. And ultimately, you know, we're here to put shine a global spotlight on African food and kind of show the world what they have been missing. Because when you look at world cuisines, African food hasn't touched that global spotlight like such um like other cuisines such as Indian or Chinese. Um so what started me what I guess for me you know, I've been working in finance, as I said, for like 10, 11 years. But as much as I enjoy finance, um, I always knew that I would want to come back to the continent and do something on the continent. And, you know, having done my research, um, I felt like, OK, well, you know, we've got all this kind of land that we're not using. Agriculture should really be at the forefront now, especially when we know the numbers in terms of like one in four people are going to be. Afro, um, African in the world by 2050 you know why is there not a focus on this so initially my entrepreneurial route started in me looking to maybe do wholesale so whole, um, you know trade commodities but I found actually you know working for big organizations you have a name so I can easily go and do something in finance because I've got big banks under my belt but when you transition into a new industry, if you don't know people and don't have the relationships, it's a bit hard for you to say you're going to be able to, um, you know, export X amount of, um, let's say, yams into a new country because you just don't have the relationship. So I, so that business kind of, it was like two months and then I decided actually it's not really going to work. I don't think I'm there yet. So I went back to the drawing board and I said, okay, so what do I need to do, um, you know, to create global demand for African products and then I decided 
let me start just creating a buzz around cooking African food. So initially I started with a page called Maggie Spot. But again, that didn't really do well in terms of um, bringing in an audience and attracting an audience. So I had to go back to the drawing board and really understand, the, you know, the demographic I was focusing on, really understand what people wanted, what problems um, were out there. And I found that, you know, when it comes to cooking African food, a lot of the time it's very time consuming to cook traditional foods. And as, um, you know, as times are changing, people just don't have two and a half hours to sit in front of a kitchen, especially now in the modern society where both a mum and, and dad are working full-time jobs, looking after mm. kids. You know, spending two and a half hours cooking your favourite African dish is not is not practical. So, you know, they wanted more um, easy recipes and that's what Ito looked to do. So we provide our audience with free recipes um, both um, digitally and written on our website and we literally teach you how to cook your favourite African dishes but our focus is on reducing the time and then the next problem we look to solve is I guess the convenience so whilst I am Ghanaian I've spent most of my career in London and um, my life sorry in London and you know um, for me being a, um, a finance babe in the city you know, I remember there was a time, especially when I was working at JP Morgan, you could be leaving the office, like get my yam and my palm soup. And then on the weekend, you know, I need to go and do my hair. I need to do my nails. Just, I don't have time. So understanding that, you know, there's plenty, there's more of me out there in terms of women, men that, you know, don't have time to shop. So how could we bring convenience? And that's when we decided to come up with our meal kit concept. So ultimately what we are looking to do there is, you know, you look at one of the Ito recipes and then um, if it's a shoppable recipe, you can add to a car and Ito will look to deliver it to you. Um, and that's really, you know, for us, it's making sure our customers have the time to do the things they like and releasing them of the burden surrounded um when it comes to shopping for African food. And then finally, we just found naturally, though our focus was on um, the consumer, we found naturally that we were just getting an interest from corporates who said, you know, we want more food content, but we don't have the resources and the time. Can Ito put something together? So then, um, you know, we provide um, product placement and sponsorship for like small to medium-sized firms that just don't have the time to put content together themselves Ito will come in and do that um so yeah so that's that's what ultimately we're and um, the problems we're looking to solve at Ito and the solutions and it's a really exciting time for the company because as I mentioned before you know it's not we're not just coming to give you African food as it's always been given to you we are focused on improving the overall quality. And if you know me individually and you just follow me individually via Maggie Spot, you can see that when it comes to good food, I'm all over it. Quality food, I'm all over it. And at Ito, I'm not here to give my customer anything less than um, what they deserve. And that's quality um, quality food. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so maybe I would like you also to maybe expound more on why it is important for us to have you know african food uh, represented on a global scale as you mentioned and uh and also 
talk about some of the exciting projects that you guys have in the pipeline and how how you see it, you know, how you see it growing in the in the next years to come. Yeah, um, so I think in terms of African food, um, on you know the in making it a global um product or um yeah, I'm providing it to global market. It's I think for me, why not? I mean, Indian food is well known across the world. Chinese yeah. food is well known. Why have we as Africans taken a backseat in really kind of showcasing what to me is probably one of the best cuisines out there? Our food is rich, it's flavoursome, it's colourful, it's bright, it brings people together. And all these things are positive um, things that, you know, I feel the world is actually missing out on. So for me, it's just a no-brainer. It's like, why why has no one looked to do this before? And why are we kind of, you know, limiting ourselves to kind of shopping for the foods we love in bad conditions when we have to go into the Western world? So what I mean by that, I'm not sure if you've ever visited London or a city like New York, but being in London and living in Zone 1, for example, try to get to an African store. You're going to have to either drive like more than 30 minutes or commute to a store that is just not near you and I just feel we as a um we are growing as a population our numbers you know we're going to be the um, biggest demographic by 2050 in the world we need to be better served on a global scale and I think that's what's exciting about ETO we understand you know we see what's coming in the future and we are positioning the our company to make sure we're able to address our customers and be able to give them the services they're going to need um, with that, such a population growth. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a very important word because I think sometimes as Africans, everything, I suppose, ties to our identity. So it's also important for us to have, you know, representation when it comes to our food and for us to be proud of of that aspect of our of our um, culture and existence, um, can you maybe also share, you know, perhaps a memorable success story or milestone that you guys have achieved? Um, perhaps you know, a, a customer success story or, or something of that sort. Yeah, so I guess our most recent um, milestone has been delivering our milk kits. Um, so we basically trialed our vegetarian milk kit in the London area, and that was in the first on the first weekend of June this year. And for me, it was a success because it's something that we, you know, the team have been working very hard to put together. We were able to roll, we were able to deliver to all our custom, um, all our customers in the London area. Even went took a box down to Essex, and it was just the response from our customers. Um, one, they were impressed with the quality of product given, the um, the relief, especially from some of the mothers and not needing to go to the shops and purchase, um, you know, like plantain, yam, the stuff that we had put in the, the milk kits for, for them. And then also the excitement on their faces because, you know, um, whilst you have other companies like HelloFresh, Gusto that have, you know, entered the milk kit market, Years ago, when it comes to African milk it, it's not penetrated the market as such. So it's definitely been, that was definitely a great thing for us um, to see. I think everyone across the team were very excited and we were just generally happy that the customers were happy. 
And I think, you know, when you're working on a business, as much as you, the founder, your team might have great ideas. If your customer does, is not happy, if your customer doesn't want the product, then what are you building? So for us to be, you know, having spent so much of the first year of Ito just planning, understanding, researching, and then now we're starting to trial product and to get positive reviews, positive feedback, and to be able to deliver on our product, it's it's amazing for us. It's exciting. We can't wait to deliver more. We can't wait to get more product in front of our customers. And honestly, I I can't express how much how exciting it is to see the vision kind of come to life it is taking time I think I you know it is testing my patience but you know just delivering even that first milk kit was amazing and feeling and it you know I just want to actually thank the whole of the Ito team from the guys on the network to the operations team for you know putting it together and to really really making things happen so yeah that um that's probably one of the most recent milestones that I'm really excited and yeah no that's awesome um so earlier you spoke about you know uh, you know leaders like Nkwame Nkuruma being instrumental in, in your own development as an entrepreneur and in your own thinking and usually the question that is asked of leaders is whether they are born or made I suppose I'm going to ask like the entrepreneurial version of that question do you think entrepreneurs are born or made and maybe you can speak to some misconception that people have about you know being an entrepreneur yeah so for me I think personally I think I think that like you know what I believe it's a 50 50 I think some people are born as entrepreneurs so you know as soon as they come out of their mom and then at that early years they they're hustling so examples would be being in school selling sweets you know that's an entrepreneur for when they were born right but then there's that 50 percent that um you know sometimes life experiences actually kind of tells them actually you know what i don't want to go down the road it when they you know it might not have been a skill or something they wanted to do at an early year but over time it's something that they've they feel they have um, the ability to do now and they want to go for it. Um, so for me, I feel like it, I I wouldn't say that, you know, you, you're you born an entrepreneur. I would say it's a 50, oh, you're just born an entrepreneur. I mean, I would say it's a 50-50. You could either be born or it could be something that comes to you later on in life to do. But I do think that entrepreneur is probably something that is thrown out there very lightly. Um, you know, so for instance, that I mean, a few years back, I believe everyone was calling them a, themselves an entrepreneur. And if you really understand what it means to be an entrepreneur, you probably might not want to call yourself that. And what I mean, what I mean to say is that it's not an easy road. You know, when I yeah. started Ito, it I boost. You know, I invested in the company myself, so I'm taking money out of doing other things to focus on building this company at a time when the company is yet to even break even, at a time when, you know, um, and I think you're probably going to talk to this, where raising funding as a female is quite challenging. Um, You know, the hours you put in, if you think entrepreneur is like a a lavish lifestyle, it absolutely is not. You are working long hours, 
Sometimes you're alone for long periods of time. Sometimes you just don't even know where your next paycheck is coming from. So think about that from like, you know, if you have a family to look after and stuff, it's not the most glamorous and exciting world. And I think also people need to remember more startups fail than succeed. So for that 1% of successful startups that you're referencing as, oh my gosh, you know, they, they've they just gone public, she's now a billionaire or, you know, they've just um, done a private sale, he's now a millionaire. You need to understand that's not everyone's story. And some people spend 20 years as an entrepreneur and don't even make enough, they don't even make enough for themselves than what they would have spent if they went into the corporate world or, you know, um, working for someone in another um, type of industry. So I think, you know, being an entrepreneur, it, you have to on that route just to be rich. You're going to have, um, you're going to be quite, um, very shocked um, and have a rude awakening um, because it's not, it's not an easy route. It comes with a lot of challenges and you as an individual, if, if it's just the money you're going in it for, then you know you're you're gonna struggle ultimately. And there's other ways you can make money. I've seen millionaires work in investment banking. It's not you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be a millionaire, or you don't have to be um, a footballer or a rapper to be a millionaire. There's other corporate jobs that can get you a million um, easily. Exactly. Um... I think it also speaks to this idea that you were talking about that you need to really, if you're working on something, it needs to be something that you really love and not just, you know, doing it because you want to make a quick buck or, or something like that. And maybe just going back a little bit uh, on when you were describing that first interaction that you had with a customer and how elated you were, um, I just I just want you maybe to speak on some of the lessons that you've learned so far as a founder and how you know, they've shaped your approach to, to entrepreneurship. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, one of the first things is, you know, when I look at the vision I have for Ito um, and where we're going, it's, um, you know, you can't build something great alone. You need a team. And for that reason, you need to be someone that not only empowers people, but people look on to you as a leader because ultimately especially when you're starting up your journey you're literally saying hey guys I'm working on this great idea come and follow me and telling them to let go of any other opportunity that could present itself to them so they need to basically trust in your leadership trust in your direction and ultimately you as um, steering the ship directing the ship need to be able to form a team to execute on the vision yeah and then I think one of the biggest le- and, and a lesson I've learned in this world of startups is as you build a team, unfortunately, you're not always going to get it right. The best thing you can do is to get rid of bad people soon. And the yeah. reason why I say that is because if you don't, they will sink your ship. You know, so once you identify bad talent, get rid of them. It doesn't have to be confrontational. Just sit them down and say, for where Ito or for where your business is going, you don't feel that you align. You can help them get something else, but you know where you are, it it, it doesn't work because if you keep bad people with you, it's not going to work. You're going to be frustrated. You're gonna your your um, ship's going to sink. And it's you know the team is essential um, 
on the on the vision and then I think another thing I would say is that don't as much as you want to get to market with your product there is value in just planning um, and spending a bit more time understanding the sector the market you're in and really you know like yes you have a vision for this but you know what are the risk factors associated you know are you going to be able to manage them if not what kind of infrastructure do you need to be around to manage it um, and the reason again I say this is because you know a lot of startups fail and if you spend a bit more time in the due diligence in understanding the landscape it basically means you can reduce the risk and hopefully it's a more successful outcome um, for you um, and then I think as a founder you're not going to know everything but don't you should never go into rooms and not un- know who's in front of you. You should never have a, an area in your business and not understand that area. If you do, you're putting yourself and your business at risk because you're kind of at the mercy of the individual and that, you know, you're seeking advice from. And unfortunately, in this world we live in, whilst a lot of people will give you good advice, good direction, not everyone has your best interests at heart or your business's best interests at heart. So I say, you know, especially when you have a team depending on you, as that founder, you need to make sure operationally you've got the support you need. So you always have that vision, that direction to just understand the big picture. If you need to go into the details in certain areas, go into the details to come back up and look at everything um, from that bird's eye view and make sure all the pieces of the puzzle are um, fitting together. So I think, yeah, for me, you know, these are kind of like the lessons I've learned and like the, you know, through learning these lessons, these are the approaches I kind of take to, um, you know, building out Eto and like moving on with um, my startup. Yeah. Awesome. I, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, aspect of due diligence. Um, I think it was Paul Graham uh, for a combinator who had encouraged the founders of Airbnb to do things that don't scale, um, which means they had to, you know, fly to different cities, talk to their customers or rather their hosts. And so I think it's very important um, for entrepreneurs to do that work, that sort of the data work, so to speak, um, and not just, you know, be interested in uh, sort of the glamorous side of things. Um, I just want to maybe stay a little bit more on this um topic of you know leadership and team building so you know whenever the question of you know what makes a successful startup team is asked one common answer is that you know you need people with prior startup experience product knowledge industry skills um and that these you know sort of factors predict the success of a new venture but there were researchers uh, in the netherlands that studies nine that studied 95 new startups um and their conclusion was that in addition to some of the things that I've mentioned or some of the qualities that you'd expect, they also found that, you know, a shared entrepreneurial passion and a shared strategic vision um, required in order to get, you know, superior team uh, performance. So maybe can you expound more on your specific approach in terms of leadership and team building? How is it that you build a, you know, a coercive and, and effective team? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think for me, I mean, you know, like, um, if we look at my background in finance, 
um, you know, you have to be, um, when it comes to the markets, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to understand the markets and continuously learning. And, and then naturally I've done professional qualifications in order to ensure that, you know, I'm a, a good financial service professional. Um, but when it comes to the startup world, I, I would say that like my first thing is passion, um, you know, like passion and the ability to learn because yes, it's, you know, yes, um, it's good to be knowledgeable in an area, but ultimately for the roads ahead, you just need, you need a team and you need that leader that just has a passion that can wake up at crazy hours or jump on a plane just because they've been called into a meeting and has the energy building start working towards something and when it comes to identifying a team now to execute on the vision of the founder I would say you know you build a team that complement each other so when I look at the Ito team I don't go and pick the same individual for every department in terms of characteristics because for me that it, it I'm if I'm creating five of the same then who's going to be where were we how are we ever going to be really be able to you know um shape our product how we everyone's just a yes man in in the team so I always look for a a team that is diverse in talent and skills set so um and I think that's um that's the beauty of like how I build because ultimately what it then means is that when we go into a, a room and brainstorming, everyone can come in as themselves and their opinion is valued and everyone respects each other and what they're bringing to the table. Because ultimately it's no, it's not that X has looked down on your pod and what you're doing. He's just coming to you because he's got more experience in tech. And whilst yes, you might be working on like, the physical product from that user experience online he might feel like actually visually the way you're building the product doesn't make sense for how the customer sees it online so that input he gives is as important as that um the product developer that I have on the team that's coming up with the recipes coming up with how we um the boxes and um, look so I I I think for me when it comes to team yes you want a skilled team you want a knowledgeable team but it's not that everyone in my team needs to be have experience in a startup, no. Or it's not that everyone in my team has to have um, experience in tech, no. I, I value differences in ability, differences in skill set. And ultimately, it's, it's looking at the person and saying, okay, can I trust you? Can I rely on you? If let's just say I was taken out of the room to act in the interest of the company and that's where stuff where you know yes you could be academically but do you you know skill integrity you know this is where that comes into play and that's not necessarily measured by your qualification um you know doing the right thing for the customer it's not necessarily measured by a qualification so I think for me it's it's a mixture of multiple things and I I thrive in diverse teams you know when when I look at Ito being formed we have a strong presence in Africa ranging from Ghana you know I've had people in Nigeria work on the product products in Barbe have had some interaction with people in Kenya then on you know I've also um, had people in India working on Ito 
um, through to people in London. So um, I'm all for diversity. I'm all for different skill sets. I think the magic is when you're able as a leader to bring people from different backgrounds together and for them to feel included for them to be feel part of the what you're building and for them to just come as themselves and bring bring their knowledge bring their intelligence without feeling that you know they're going to be looked down on frowned on or you know it's my way or the highway and um, that's not you know the kind of culture I build at Ito um yeah awesome so um so you know about only two percent of investments go to female founders um i don't know if this this state is this state is still current but what 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 do you why do you think this is and is, is there a different standard for female founders do you think okay good question yeah so like in terms of why i think this is is because you know you know if we look back many years ago women when it came to eat being independent women were only given right you know I can't remember the year but not so long ago so you know it's only now we're being able to build ourselves put ourselves in top positions but we ultimately still are in a male-dominated world and for that reason alone um when it comes to funding um it it it's hard for us to sometimes convince a male investor who just doesn't understand our world or how we think um just because they're kind of used to working with males kind of used to funding you know people that look like them um and unfortunately at the moment it is the game it is the environment we're in I do think it is very challenging for female founders I you know when I look at some of um so you know I'm in a lot of female networks and I see women building amazing products, amazing services. And then when I look at, you know, their roadmap to access and funding, it's a struggle. You know, they're going into investor um, pitches. If you're not being, um, if you're not being asked to do more with no resources, then you're, you know, you're, you're being put in very inappropriate situations where an investor meeting is now turning into a date that you you were not aware of um and I think in order for I think in order for more to be done in this space I think men need to really be educated to the frustrations women are facing in the um in the fundraising process and really take steps to make the change because as much as we're knocking on the door to say you know here look we're building these great products open it up if there's no one on the inside actually turning the doorknob unlocking the door we're never going to get in and it does what you know so-called pledges are being made if the real decision makers are not doing anything then we will continue to struggle to get access um we will continue as women to get struggle to get access to funding. Um, and when I look at, you know, Ito's journey, it's been very challenging um, in the sense that, you know, here I am building a great product. I've done the research, building a great team. Um, and yet I'm still being asked to do more, knowing that I don't have the money to do more. If I've come to an investor meeting, it, it's me telling you, hi guys, 
this is an idea, this is a concept I'm, you know, I'm working on. I need X amount to get us to this stage. Even when you're going into investor meetings and telling them you are at pre-seed, you know. So pre-seed stage, what is the core of pre-seed stage? It's product development, it's testing, but they still want you to be at a series A, B kind of route in terms of where your business is at. And it, it's like, okay, you can tell me to go out there and do all these things, but if I don't have the right resources, I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, and, we, you know, if we look at Europe, for instance, there's a company called, it's an AI company. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. They literally formed a month ago and were able to raise just with their business plan, um, you know, and their team without doing any product development, without putting anything out there. They've been able to raise 105 million for their pre you know their first round of fundraising and you look at that as a woman and you're like wow I'm not even going for that and even at this level that I'm on even to tell you okay I'm raising this amount because I believe my business this business is worth this by the time I finish um we finish this next phase the business will be worth here so I, I'm showing you a roadmap a, a, um, a roadmap to how we get to like a 10x and you're still telling me I need to do more. But how can I do more if I don't have the resources to do more? So it's it's very, it's, it's quite sad and it is very disheartening. But I think as well as a founder, you know, we do have some success stories. When you look at the founder of um, Bumble, she was a f- um, female. Same um, challenges I faced. And I think a lot of women are facing the challenges that we are just not getting in the rooms or we're just not getting to, getting to the guys that are making the decisions to give us funding and then the the kind of like I would call them joker investors that really don't understand what you know what it really means to build a big company you know they will tell you okay go and do this or for instance you know I had one in, um I had one investor that basically said okay but what would your operations um plan in detail look like in year five you know and for me it was a bit silly because when I look at the money i you know, at that stage we were asking for. Um, year five, I know overall where the business is going, but you know in the startup world, the business is constantly in a process of iterating. We're constantly building, putting teams together. So me telling you in full detail what of what year five will look like makes no sense because you should already know that the longer you're out on your projections, the more likely it's not going to happen, you know? Um, so for me, it's just you, you're just always dealing with funny individuals. If they're not being in, inappropriate, then they're asking for an arm and a leg. And ultimately, I just feel like it, it's just it it wastes time because I could be out there selling product, but right now I'm just I'm continually like going into rooms and just being rejected. And it's just like I've done all of this. I've shown you. I've even had um, businesses that I've done before close down shop gone and built Ito and said listen Ito's doing in terms of traction in terms of audience in terms of branding we're doing so much better than things I've um, failed on in the past I'm showing you that this will work because I can see the difference between what I'm building here and what I've built in other um in my other ventures and yet it's still the no go and do a bit more go and do a bit more and it's just like really at this stage but I mean I'm someone that never gives up. I believe in Ito. I have a great team um, around me. And again, it's, you know, as hard as it is for women founders, 
the market in general is risk off. A lot of investors are kind of scared with rate hikes and with what's going on in the world. So no one really kind of, so you're not seeing as much liquidity in the market anyway. So for that, there is a kind of patience game that you have to play at the moment. But it's, you know, we're in it for the long haul. And I do believe that we will align ourselves with the right investors at the right time. So we just have to be patient as a company. Awesome. Um, maybe just to, as a segue, I, I also there's this also there's this kind of phenomenon that's also happening on the continent where, you know, you have people that don't live in Africa, that mm-hmm. are not Africans at all, that um, are getting funding for starting African businesses, and in some cases you have founders that feel the need to have an Af- a, a white face on their. Uh, pitch deck so that they could get funding so i mean i I don't know what your take is on that and and why you think there's there's people feel the need to do that you know what does that have to do with competence and you know actually having a great business yeah unfortunately you know in an ideal world that you know we that shouldn't be how we have to approach starting a business getting funding in building a team but unfortunately where a lot of the wealth and the money is sitting at the moment it's um it's it's not you know a lot of it is being held by white men and it's more than likely that a white man is going to lend to another white man over lending to a black man and unfortunately I hate to say it but it's the world we live in at the moment I think what needs to change is we need to see more high net worth people people of influence in Africa supporting Africans because then ultimately what you know it's because you know the African problem is not for the white man to solve it's for the African man to solve and in order for the African man to solve it he needs to build the right team amongst him so you know when you look at like some of the white founders and what's happened in um in the western world I mean, you know, you look at the founders of Google, I think when they first started out, one of the investors just without even going into a, a business plan, a deck, he saw two brilliant guys, saw that they were building something, wrote them a che- check of $100,000. The reason he wrote them the check was he didn't want them to focus on anything else. He didn't want them to go and get a part-time job. He just wanted them to focus on building products. You don't hear that story happening on the continent. You don't see high net worth individuals um, you know, identifying, you know, really good entrepreneurs in Africa and saying, you know what, I'm worth a hundred million. Let me write you a check of a hundred thousand. Just build a product. I don't want you to go and get a job. I just want you to build a product. You've got a brilliant idea. You just don't hear that. And at the moment, this is what we need because me as a founder, in order to bootstrap and fund my business, I'm working a full-time job. I love finance. I'm never going to leave finance. But it would be nice to have the option to say, actually, I'm taking a year or two years out of finance to just focus on building ETO. I can't do that at the moment. How am I going to survive? You know, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to eat? Like, I can't do that. Do I have anyone on the continent that I can leverage and look to them and say, oh, you know, here I'm building a great product. Yes, there's high risk, but the rewards are going to be extremely high if we get to where... I'm going no I don't have I don't have that I don't have that network I don't have that access in fact I find that when I go to an African investor 
they're asking me the more ridiculous questions than what a white investor asks me. And that mm. is even more frustrating because forget you, what we need yeah. to improve. If you identify good talent and you can see one of the restraints to them is just their access to finance, you should be writing that check because more time your money is being spent on um, nice holidays, horses, you know, jet setting, private jets. What is um a hundred thousand dollars gonna do to do for you? You know, it's yeah. not gonna do nothing. But to an entrepreneur that's just starting in the game, um, that really just needs to just spend time developing product, you you will be surprised at how much those little checks go a long way in their journey, in their story of building. And unfortunately, the money is sitting a lot of the money is sitting with the white men. They are releasing it, but they're releasing it to white men. So people are having to be strategic by saying, hey, look, I've got a white man on my board. Look at our company. And if it gets them the check, it gets them the check. Should be, that be the way things are done? No, it shouldn't. But people are having to play to the game. I think if anything, if you know, we have investors listening, especially African um, um, African Caribbean investors, they really need to identify the the criteria of an of how they are investing, how they are allocating their money, and if they are being a bit too hard, um, you know, are they really understanding the landscape we're in? You know, like the times yeah. we're in. Do they need to relax their approach a bit, or maybe it could just be, you know, okay, you believe in this person, they might need, still need a bit more support. I can write them a check. However, in order to write them a check, they need to, um, I need to give them access to this person who works in operations, this person with this experience in their field. So then you're more confident with what they're building. And ultimately, that's kind of the game in, in private equity. You know, like if big um, asset managers are going to put money into firms and companies, they look to bring in the right team to get that company to where it goes to. So as an investor, if you feel like, okay, you know, there's a lot of risk here. There's nothing stopping you from saying, okay, let me also see if I can allocate personnel to that entrepreneur yeah. to support them so they get to to where you want them to get to. Um, but it, it's just, it's, it's a very lot to build. We need clever people. We need bright people. We need passionate people. And we need to understand that, you know, it wasn't so long ago, some of our... Um, you know the situation of Africa was very different there was slavery people were in really bad conditions and you know I know when it's not great now we see how corrupt governments are we see how people are um, struggling on the continent but things have changed and there is now a movement we all can feel it every time I'm back on Ghanaian soil I can feel the transition is happening it's just a time game so we just need to be patient. We need to keep building and we just can't give up. I think as well, when I look at Ito, all the rejections I've had, you know, someone that is not as strong or, you know, would give up. But I, there, there's no way we're giving up. We can't even afford to give up. Look at what we need to build, build back home. We just, we don't have the luxury of like giving up. If things are not going right, you iterate, but you don't give up. And I just think as frustrating as it is in terms of us accessing funding, if we have to be a bit strategic about it for now, do it. But then at the same time, that shouldn't be how things are going about. If a white man or a black man is looking for funding, they should be treated fairly um, by the investor and shouldn't be um, 
favored based on the color of their skin? Awesome. I think um, you you sort of you know echoing something that Vusi um, Tembogoy once said, but his is more of a psychological take where he describes what he calls the three blacks, right? So you know whenever as black people we want to succeed, we always want to be the best black, the only black, um, and the or the first black, right, to ever do something. So uh, maybe it kind of speaks to what you're saying that maybe instead of you know looking outside, we should do some self introspection and actually think about investors who are on the continent and ask ourselves what are they doing, how how we can actually help build our own. Because at the end of the day, it's not easy to convince someone who was in New York or or London or anywhere in the world to really understand what's going on on the continent. Um, it's much easier to convince or to talk to someone who actually experiences some of our, our lived realities as entrepreneurs and who understands our markets. Um, you know, I, I'm also just want to, you know, obviously the space that we're in, like you're saying, you have to constantly iterate and it requires one to have a flexible and open mind, uh, given how quickly things change. So what's what's your information diet like? Um, how do you stay on top of your game? Okay, so I think for me, I am someone like I, I'm very big on understanding. Like one, you have to understand the level you sit on in an organization. So if I'm the founder and the CEO, like the CEO, I need to be very strategic, very visionary, right? So when it comes to, um, so when it comes to building things, I'm, I build, I implement processes and then I delegate. And the reason why I do this is because ultimately if I'm um, always kind of bogged down in the everyday day-to-day stuff, I'm not able to direct the company or look at that company from that bird's eye view um to really see what's going on so as so as a founder i would say delegating but delegating to the right individual is key within your organization um i'm really big on you know for me collaboration is big you know you spoke earlier to the fact that like you know you know some black people they just have this they want to be the only black person i'm that is not how I operate. I am the biggest collaborator um, because there's, I believe there's room for everyone to thrive. Um, and I just don't understand, like at this stage, we don't have room to be trying to do things ourselves. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. There's only so much one person can do. And I've physically seen that when I look at my first kind of food project to now. I've done so much more with Ito just because I was able to build a robust team around the company, right? Um, so for me as a founder, you know, like I just I just make sure that like I'm all I always keep myself at a visionary strategic seat. Um, that's not to say I don't ever step into other roles because if someone's out or for instance, like when we're doing um food day shoots, you know, I'll I'll um if I'm around, I'm present in the kitchen, I'm helping the team, I'm supporting the team. But ultimately, I re- I'm really big on stay within your area, within the firm. Because if t- too many people are crossing over and everyone's like doing the same thing, then ultimately it ultimately means, you know, water could sip into the sink, 
um, the ship at one on one side because you know you're not where you're supposed to be in order for this this to move forward. So for me, it's just you know identifying where I sit and building a team, knowing when to delegate, know when to step in and help, know when to step back out, and just you know for me, I you, as a father, you never really switch off. You know, I'm always wanting to understand what's going on. I want con- um a look. Um, updates regular updates and I know as the business grows I'm not going to be able to know everything that's going on in every department but whilst we're still a small firm I like to keep my eyes on most departments see what they're doing and engage with engage with my team very regularly and from understanding the work they're doing to understanding their pain points and conflict resolution you know I'm just I, I think for me I'm just I can get involved in the detail and then I know when to remove myself from the detail to make sure I'm still strategic. I'm just a startup and yeah, I've already put a board of very established people in place and I meet up with them quarterly to like just give them an update on where ETA is going, what we're doing and just to get a perspective from someone that's not sitting in the in it with us but outside yeah. then they can give us that view that maybe we're not overlooking and I'm, you know, for me as a founder, I'm big on collaboration I know where I'm taking this company, but I also know I can't just do it alone. And it's always important for me to take in a, take in information as much as be given information. If I make it one way, then it could it could spoil the direction of Ito. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, you know, whenever we talk about the African tech ecosystem, there are four countries that come to mind, you know, they're often referred to as the big four, right? Egypt, South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria. But um, Accra is not too far behind. And, you know, with with moves by big tech companies like Twitter, who set up uh, their African headquarters in Ghana, and uh, the launch of Google's AI lab in Accra. So I'm just I'm just interested in what makes this market unique. And you spoke about the sense that you get whenever you you lend um what uh, what sort of lessons can you know i guess my own country can learn in terms of building you know like a vibrant startup ecosystem and 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 that sort of um vibe yeah so you know like i guess for me you know you know ghana was one of the was the first african country to gain independence so when even though yes our economy that might not be as big you know when you look at like Kenya and Nigeria but there's a I feel like there's a um a spiritual belonging for every black person in um Africa in the Caribbean that it starts with Ghana and I think what we've been able to do is everyone that lands whether they you know um they've come from the states and the Jamaican and um, Europe they everyone says there's a peace when you get to Accra there's a peace and when you're on that Labadi beach strip you just you can't explain it you just have to be there to that spirit spirit spiritual blessing over the land and it's something that cannot I don't think it can be easily replicated but I think what is the the beauty of Africa is that Every country probably has its thing and it's for every country to identify what that thing is. I think for Ghanaians, we just know that there's a peace in our land that you can't describe and you can see it. Now, what we've been able to do, okay, so whilst I say that 
we yes we are behind when we look at some of the bigger economies but you know that's just how it is and we, in terms of like our economy i mean against nigeria like i see nigeria as the powerhouse of africa right um but what we're able to do as we're welcoming we're polite crime levels are relatively low in accra people feel safe to go around um you know and it it let's take away making money let's take away all of that like the, the luxuries of what a good um a successful um business can see at the core of it we're all human people what love human interaction right it's that hello when you go into a hotel it's that how was your day that's what keeps a person coming back to you you know that service and I think that naturally comes in Ghana because as Ghanaians we're just naturally pol polite we're very welcoming we're you know we, we we're very inviting you you come and visit my aunties in um in the village you won't want to leave because they'll be feeding you even with the little they have they're very giving people and I think just that human element that we have has been the success story, has been the reason why you have people constantly saying Ghana, 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 Ghana. When you know, when you look at the wealth of Ghana compared to Nigeria, it's not there, right? Like we can't compete with Nigeria. We're never going to compete with Nigeria from that um, standpoint. But what we've yeah. been able to do is we've been able to create an ecosystem that allows people from all parts of the world to come over and feel at home they feel welcome and they feel safe no one is going to travel anywhere or look to build a business anywhere that they don't feel safe then the next element to it is if you want people to come into your lands and start to build companies and stuff then they need to ensure that one they have um um they're not going to face political risk so you don't have governments knocking on their door trying to take their money or um, defrauding them and stuff and then at the same time, you know, they they don't have to deal with like crime, like people stealing their resources. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen in Ghana. You know, I've had some entrepreneurs, especially in the farming industry, have had like their crops stolen, have had their equipment stolen. So it does happen, but it's relatively low. Now, when you sometimes look at our neighbor, like look at Nigeria, what's going on in going on in, over there? A lot of companies want to go to Nigeria. They want to go and do big business in Nigeria, but it's that political risk. It's the it's the um, it's the theft. You know your staff theft, then external forces, the crime levels. All these things are are, are just big put off. So if the in if the business environment is not there, no one's going to set up shop. So when you look at some of you know the American companies that have looked to Ghana first over Nigeria even though we know the numbers are in Nigeria um, it's because Ghana provides them stability what multi-million organization wants to go and set up shop in a country that one they don't know if they, their workers will be robbed they don't know if um, the governments will try to put them down no one wants that Every, companies need stability you give them an environment where they you know their employees or personnel can feel safe they're going to be there. You give them an environment where they can do business, good business, they're going to be there. When we look at the West, when we look at how London became the financial hub, obviously now after Brexit, things are now moving into Europe, but it's because the UK, um, we were able to kind of 
identify a, a framework that worked on a global scale. You know, a, com a financial yeah, service, yeah. service company setting up shopping um, in the city of London is not going to, is not thinking that there's going to be a terrorist attack. That's the last risk they're looking to even analyze. They can just focus on the core of the business, the risk of the business. And I think if African countries want to get it right, they need to create an environment for people to do, for corporates to do good business. And then they also need to create an environment for their working middle class individuals to thrive, you know, because keeping all the wealth in one area where, where you don't have the right infrastructure, the schools are not there, the healthcare is not there. You're going to have a, a, a system of individuals that are just frustrated. What do frustrated people do? They go and commit crimes. It's like for me, honestly, talking to you, it's just it's common sense. And I don't understand why as. Af like African leaders are failing to implement what is basic. It's I'm not saying that every person on the continent needs to be a millionaire. Not everyone desires to be a millionaire. They just want food. They just want healthcare. They just want infrastructure. They want education. These are basic human rights. Give an individual their basic human rights. Naturally, your landscape will improve. Start to implement um, law and order where you know corruption is reduced um you will see more organizations coming setting up shops when you look at the numbers for africa and so i sound so passionate right now it's like we have the resources we have the numbers why are we not creating an ecosystem for businesses to thrive you know there's only so much the public sector is going to do i don't believe the public sector is going to move africa um um, the private sector to thrive the public sector need to step in and do what they need to do to create that ecosystem for private sector companies to come in and just do wonders and then also oversee them so they don't exploit the people and the um and the country they operate in yeah um i suppose you can't uh, overlook the political question if ever we're going to change the narrative of africa and um you just reminded me of this is something that i mentioned in my previous podcast the um former prime minister of singapore uh, lee kanyu and one of the one of the interesting things about singapore is that they were they're not so different from a lot of african countries right they're also a British colony, and they had all sorts of problems, you know, ethnic problems. It was, they, they don't have natural resources, so they had to, so the leadership of uh, Lee Kao Nyu essentially allowed, he essentially created an environment where, you know, Singapore now is uh, a, a great financial hub in the world. So I suppose maybe... Um, you can explain more on what what the role of decisive and effective leadership if we're going to, you know, change the African narrative. Okay, I think it's, well, one, you know, it's a great leader cannot be selfish, you know, and so characteristic, like, greed, it, 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 it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be in the environment. I think, you know, it's, understanding i feel like one a great leader should understand what it takes to build a nation right and when you when you just look at that um from a um a basic standpoint let's just you know keep to like um 
how economies are built. Education, infrastructure, healthcare, yeah, law and order. These are the main things African leaders should be focusing on, the resources they should be focusing on. When they are tracks and if they are not, if they don't do, then that's where you have your law and order. If someone steals X amount of government um, money that was needed for education to build 20 schools, they built one school took um, and, and took the, the money for the other 19, that person should not be a free man walking on the con um, continent. They need to be brought into the courtroom and dealt with. And I think a great leader understands what it takes to build a nation, builds the nation, has that law and order there. So if anyone steps out of place, they are dealt with in the right way. Um, and it's, you know, all this acting in self has to go. And unfortunately, we, we um, as Africans, you know, our culture is very big. So I love my culture, don't get me wrong, but there are, there are aspects of my culture that are outdated. And if we don't understand the times we're in, what it takes to build nations, and we're still doing things because of, oh, you know, I'm Christian and you're Muslim, so you can't get this access or you can't do this. What it means is then we're putting people in seats that don't deserve the seat, or we're giving a, um, a seat to someone that, their their parents are rich or their um their their dad was a former president but does that person possess the skills it takes to run a um a country no they don't and i think for me like i think i i just honestly even talking to you i think it's like a no-brainer we know what it takes to to build yeah. an economy you look over like you said you look to singapore what they've done even look to um what they're doing in that um UAE this how they even look at how Dubai was went from a desert to now this big tourist um spot because they knew that they would soon start to run out of oil I mean I don't know what African leader doesn't wake up and think wow if they are doing this how can we not be doing this and not actively look to to start moving towards but it just talks to the leaders we have in um, in power at the moment they're not competent they don't know what they're doing they need we need a shake-up of the political system across Africa and then as Africans we need to come together because you know one thing I do find funny you know um I'm based I would say I'm based in Ghana you're based in your part of Africa we're collaborating you know we're understanding the importance of collaborating even at our early entrepreneurial level what are governments doing when they're attending big government meetings. Why is it that even like even when you look at um um air travel in Africa, like I don't know if you've ever studied how flights come in and out of Africa, but in like flying in Africa is quite hard. Like yeah. you get from Ghana to one part of Africa is quite hard. Sometimes you have to go to Europe to come back into Africa. Now as a leader, in my head I'm like, what are you doing? Because you, we all know the movement of um, trade, the movement of people is what drives nations. And yet 
in order for some of us to travel to parts of Africa when we're in a car, we have to go back to London to get there. It's not making sense. So we need, we need as leaders, and I, sorry, I think I, now I'm going on to other things, but it's like we just need someone that understands what it takes to build a nation, understands all the sectors that are impacted that the public sector need to focus on, and then building the right relationships across Africa to make things happen. Because as Ghanaians, you know, Ghana has, you know, we, we have cocoa, we have gold, but we don't have all the commodities we need to survive. We sometimes, we, you know, we're importing in a lot of things when from Europe and Europe are probably exporting them into Europe to then, to then, um, um, bring it to Africa. And I'm like, but we could just be talking to ourselves as Africans and saying, okay, in Ghana, we have X, Y, Z. In Nigeria, you have this. In South Africa, you have this. In Kenya, you have this. Let's start to trade amongst each other effectively efficiently let's look at our um how things are being moved f m air freight on sea let's start to make things happen but it's not it's not and and i think as well the problem with the african is that a lot of the time some of our african leaders are still going to the west to beg for things and it's only recently i saw in kenya that they're now pushing back on the dollar and i was like look at what is going on there you know, look at what, and they're now creating a system where they're saying, guys, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in business and you want to do business in Kenya and you're African, we will open our doors to you. Now that's leadership. Now that's someone with a vision. Now that's someone we should be um, following. But unfortunately, that is not applied everywhere. So yeah, sorry, I think I went on a bit of a rant there. I get, I do get emotional when I um, I talk to Africa. So yeah, that's, I guess that's my take. No, no problem. Um, so... I'd I'd like maybe if, if you can share with our listeners, you know, um, some books that you would recommend, uh, or some books that have had an impact on you as an entrepreneur and and a business person. Yeah, I think you know what the first book I'm gonna say is. Um, I have to say it's by um. I think I mentioned it earlier, but it's by sorry. It's called What It Takes. Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence by Stephen A. Schwartzman. So he is the founder and CEO of Blackstone. And honestly, to all the entrepreneurs out there, it's a must read. It's raw. It's the journey and gone on to build something great. And I think that's probably the only book I'm going to recommend today because it's a book that I've read probably four times because it touched me in such... I can't explain like the feeling I had after reading. It was just so raw. It was exactly what I needed. And it's it's the reminder to just keep going. As challenges as challenging as things get, you just have to keep going, especially if you believe in your idea. And one thing also I would like to point out is even if you have to say, No, I'm not gonna do this anymore, and you look, you look to you you look to go down another venture, that's also okay. But I think that spirit in you to build something and to want to create something special in Africa don't give don't give up on that I mean you can change the product you can change the company but don't ever give up on this journey because right now we need more people building in Africa and that's what's going to help create the jobs and give people direction so I would recommend for people to read what it takes lessons in the pursuit of excellence by Stephen A Schwartzman it's a must read 
Yeah, also definitely uh, check that out. So lastly, um, do you have any advice uh, you can give to aspiring female entrepreneurs who want to venture into the tech space um, but don't really know how they can get started? Yeah, so um, I think my main piece of advice is, you know, connect and network. And if you can connect with, you know, other female entrepreneurs or tech entrepreneurs or whatever space you're looking to go into that it makes a lot of sense because you know it's easy to start to build on your 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 vision and your idea when you're around people that have either walked it or are going through the journey as you're going through it um and then I guess for me I would say you know one thing I didn't know I was going to build a startup when I first kind of left my studies I was very much under the impression I'd be working in finance um, for the, like my whole life in you know big corporations. That was my early vision. So I would so I do I always encourage um you know especially early by Zoom a coffee if you live in the same city and just you know get to hear their story and like just hear how they started because sometimes in order to really identify your own path you need to it needs to kind of be broken down to you and there's no textbook that can give you that. Sometimes it's just that face-to-face or over Zoom conversation with someone that's been through it. So if you can, you know, reach out to people, don't ever be offended if someone doesn't respond. You just don't know what they're dealing with, their pressures. Um, so be open to reaching out to more than one person. I think also, and to be honest, that applies to all types of female entrepreneurs, not just the tech ones. I'm... And then I think also, you know, like in order to, um, I think through my journey and like just looking back at my career, you know, um, working in corporate has really developed my skill set. So I would recommend that, you know, if they can, and especially if they don't know what, um, what side of tech they want to sit in, then they should go and build it. Then they should go and basically get some, um, work experience um, and ideally work experience that enables them to rotate and really understand and then they can kind of say what they want to specialize in and if that's an area that then they then want to build um their own tech start startup in then they they've got that and then I guess you know you don't never stop learning you have access to as much as you could you know you can learn on the job but you know there's so much resources online um, you know, and I always say you're you're more likely to succeed as an entrepreneur if you identify the things you're really good at and build on the on and build more on your strengths and just manage your weaknesses. Um, you know, some people like to really build on their weaknesses, which is good, but it means a, a more longer and painful road because you're not you ha- it's something that doesn't come to you naturally and then on top of that you'll now want to build a startup whereas if it's if it's something that comes to you naturally in tech you're really good at it and now you actually you actually can see the future and you know actually to you have a vision for a product then you're likely to have a um an a more easier roadmap and then i i would say you know like you know could always be um reading up about other entrepreneurs and it doesn't necessarily have to be tech entrepreneurs. I think because of the the road of a startup is very challenging. It's always good to just have insight onto how other successful startups were able to launch products. 
successfully get it out there and turn their product into a big organization. Um, so that's that's some of the advice I would give. Awesome. Thank you, Margaret, for joining us on the podcast. Is there any question that you think um, that I didn't ask that you'd like me to ask? No, I think you actually... I think you asked really good questions. I'm really happy to, you know, be on the podcast. I think you're doing amazing things. I think the only thing is, if I could just give a shout out to Ito. So if you're not following us already, please do follow us on Instagram at Ito Network. So that's E-A-T-O and then network, all one word. And then you can follow our Milk It business again on Instagram at Ito Cart. Then we do have a website at the moment, which is www.etonetwork.com. There's going to be a lot more things happening in the space. We're looking to launch our milk it fully in the next coming months. Um, you know, we're continuously giving free um, online recipes and you will find that you will enjoy Eto recipes. I love our chicken peanut soup recipe. It's just amazing. The flavors are there and it doesn't take too long to make. And I think, yeah, that's it. If you ever feel you want to reach out and like you have any questions you want to ask me, I think the best place to get me is probably on Instagram because I tend to use it more. So Instagram, my at is Maggie's underscore spot. And then alternatively, you can get me on LinkedIn at Margaret Chamontin Deborah. And then you can just um, send me a message.